Hello, everyone, and welcome to a Heart to Heart with Adoptions from the Heart podcast. My name is Amanda Aliberti, social worker at Adoptions from the Heart. We welcome you to our agency podcast, a platform to hear voices from all members of the adoption triad. We will be connecting with other organizations and professionals to collaborate about the services we offer our clients. We look forward to our audience learning more about adoption and the future growth of our community. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Heart to Heart with Adoptions from the Heart. Today, we are joined by two guests. Our first guest is Rebecca Volley, the founder of Family to Family Support Network, a pro-education nonprofit organization founded in 2015. Rebecca graduated with a master's degree in education and is a mother of three children through infant adoption. Family to Family Support Network is the first hospital-based adoption support program in the nation and has been recognized as the defining best practice in handling the complex emotional and logistical needs present in infant adoption in the hospital setting. Rebecca created the Family to Family Support Network program to be used in hospitals across the country with the intention of it being a model system that could be used to better serve unique families. Welcome, Rebecca. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me today. Our second guest is our very own Stephanie Capriotti. Stephanie is the program coordinator and adoption counselor here at Adoptions from the Heart. Stephanie has been with Adoptions from the Heart for many years now, and over the years, she has witnessed her fair share of hospital placements and working alongside birth and adoptive families. For that reason and her overall professional expertise, we wanted to invite Stephanie on today to share some of her thoughts and experience on hospital training and etiquette. Welcome, Stephanie. Thank you. So this is an important conversation, especially in domestic infant adoptions, because while infants could be placed at one month old, two months old, three months old, most placements do occur at time of birth, usually in a hospital setting. So Rebecca, I think I want to start with you today. And just if you could tell us a little bit about your experience and why you decided to start this organization. Well, it goes back quite a ways to our own adoptions. We had two hospital experiences with two of our kids that were just vastly different. We had a super positive one where we felt really empowered as new parents. We were coming out of infertility. So that was certainly really important because you come in with all your insecurities that you really haven't you know, qualified as a parent. And then other hospital experience, we came in, we had been connected with our son's mom since she was just seven weeks pregnant. And we did the whole pregnancy together. I was her childbirth coach. We had our baby shower together, et cetera. And so we were super close when we got to the hospital and, and they just really weren't sure what to do with us. This has been over 20 years ago now. And um, we obviously are still connected to her, but it was just super awkward. And it, it was really clear that it was really based on the staff's comfortable whether they were comfortable or not, their level of comfort and their understanding of what we call the wedding and the funeral in the same room. This really emotional, complex time with this new mom and this potential adoptive mom. And um, I was a nightmare. My expectations were so high that um, I think the nurses that cared for us were probably like, oh my gosh, she's making me crazy. Really that, that disconnect of what you're hoping will happen and then realizing it's so contingent on the staff was was really rough. And it was that point that I started asking questions and finding out there was no standard training within healthcare about this dynamic. And it was really unfair for those nurses to be on the front lines when no one was giving them tools to even address or manage any of this. And that has just become more and more essential over the last two decades that I've watched it <laughs> because 
their nurses are on the front line like never before now. And so our program really addresses that. We teach unique family care through the model of adoption, and then it expands to multiple other patient populations. So it was really my own experience as an adoptive mom and also talking with my kids' birth parents about what it was like for them too. Yeah. So if we could talk a little bit more about the programs your organization offers, what are your efforts that you make to educate the hospitals and the healthcare organizations on hospital etiquette? So in 2004, we had a hospital that opened just south of where I live here in Denver, Parker Adventist Hospital. And I was already teaching waiting families, some like newborn care and CPR classes and whatnot. And when they opened, I just said, I really would love to bring the classes, but I also would love to just be there for families to be as a point person, you know, to help lift some of that off the staff um, and also to just do this better. So we, we always joke, we did a lot of bad adoptions. Like we had a lot of conversations with the families, like what could we have done better? What was hard? What made it harder? What could we change? And so over 10 years, I had my full-time job there as a job we created called the adoption liaison and just kind of became a wedding coordinator for adoptions, started to meet women earlier in pregnancy, getting to have conversations with them about if they wanted to place or parent, and if they wanted to parent, what kind of resources we could find for them. So just a lot of conversations in a, in a neutral space where I always said, I don't care what you pick. I just want to make sure you're successful. And we often would have that time during pregnancy to have those conversations because if they were going to carry to term, they were able to be referred to our hospital just to step forward prenatal care. And now let's spend your pregnancy kind of exploring what's available to you. And so that, that really was the core of it. We started training our nurses. We used the bereavement model for them because our nurses know we've learned to do loss well through hospice and bereavement. And often people don't look at women choosing adoption as someone that's going through a loss. They think, oh, well, she's choosing this. I had a, a mom say to me, no one knows what to say to me because I chose to break my own heart. So what do you say to someone that chooses to break their own heart? And so that idea of ambiguous loss is a core of our training as well. And really letting moms navigate and dads, if they're there, we only saw dads about 5% of the time there at the hospital, but how do you navigate your time saying goodbye? Or if you choose to parent, how do we make sure that you walk out the door with a, a solid parenting plan if needed? Yeah, it's great. So I want to talk a little bit more about the anxieties around the hospital experience. And Stephanie, maybe you could give us some field experience on this as well. We do see women come to us when they're expecting and we provide them their options, but then we also see a high amount of emergency placements. And sometimes that's because birth parents didn't receive prenatal care. Maybe they were concerned about telling their doctor that they were pregnant or planning to place their baby for adoption. But Stephanie, could you tell us a little bit more about your experience? And do you feel that expecting in birth parents have anxiety around going to hospitals and, and, and sharing that they're making an adoption plan? hundred percent. They're so worried about how it's going to be perceived and how they're going to be treated when they, you know, when they get there, because maybe they've already come from a negative experience already at a prenatal appointment, and they think that that is going to translate into the hospital experience. And so it's 100% anxiety ridden because they just don't know what is it going to look like when I get there. And 
<clears throat> how are people going to perceive me like when I cry? Because this is a sad thing for me. And so I can't tell you the number of times where, you know, a woman has had a baby and I get bombarded by the nurses when I walk on the floor because, oh my goodness, she's crying. And I'm like, well, of course she's upset. It's a sad thing. This is a hard thing she's doing. Tears are to be expected. And so as a nursing staff, unfortunately, they don't have the resources to know like what are some of these emotions. And so women, they feel like they have to carry the burden of also having to educate the nursing staff about why they're making the adoption plan or they feel like they have to explain themselves. And that's not the time for them to have to sort of explain why they're making the adoption plan to someone who is, you know, obviously a very important part of the process, but is going to have an interaction with them over a course of two to three days. And so they feel this burden that they have to be strong all the time at the hospital and can't have some of those emotions because they don't want to be questioned by the staff. They don't want the staff to think badly of them or like, like Rebecca had said earlier, like they're choosing to break their heart. So why would anybody quote unquote be nice to them, which is so hard for them because they're already struggling in the hospital and after having given birth and all of the hormones that go into that just on a biological basis and a physiological basis, and then the emotions that come with it. And then they carry the expectation of what do I do with the adoptive parents? Like if I don't have them come into the room, does that mean I'm selfish? But I also want to share that time, but I don't want to share too much of that time because this is the only time I get with the baby and so then they start to feel guilt if they you know aren't feel like they're getting it right on how much time they're going to have and how they have to share that with the adoptive parents at the hospital. Yeah. And so as an adoption social worker, uh, are there, are there things? I'm nodding my head off over here. I'm like, yes, yes. That is so true. We see that so much. So much. No, I just totally agree. And I, and I, I think about mom's going in to deliver and everything Stephanie just said, the added layer of anxiety, even the expectation that the family has to be there, like really empowering our patients to say they don't have to be here. And it's really tough. And I think we're going to talk about how many plans are being made outside of strong counseling, where they can get very kind of sidelined in the decision-making where this is what's expected. Like, oh, but I've been on Instagram. I've seen pictures of the potential adoptive family at the hospital. That's what we're going to do, right? And, you know, when you have a patient that's being asked, do you want them to be here for the delivery or after the delivery? They didn't get a, what's choice C is that they're not there at the hospital. And I think Stephanie really nailed it when she said, if they're playing a game that whole time, like, is this too much time? Not enough time. If I spend too much time, people think I'm getting too attached. Oh, for crying out loud, they're attached. They just carried this baby. And so we coach our nurses about that. We're not going to try to separate that mom and baby to help alleviate some of that pain. She needs to navigate all that time in the hospital and that family may not be there. And that is absolutely okay. But I don't hear that's an option that a lot of moms are coming in with, that they can have that time at the hospital to themselves. Yeah, Stephanie, as an adoption social worker, are there things that you do to prep the hospital when you know that a placement is about to occur? Yeah, I mean, I always call the social workers and we just have a really good conversation with the social worker at the hospital about what's the situation, the scenario, what are her specific needs going to be coming into the hospital? What are some of her anxieties? So I try to talk and have them have a good idea of what conversations we've had with them um, and also, you know, what they can kind of expect. Some of the trying times are when that doesn't get translated to the nursing staff, what we've, what the social worker and I have talked about. And so then you're having to repeat that 
And then the birth mom has to repeat all of that at the hospital to each individual shift. So throughout the years, I've been able to meet with some staff members as just as a whole and some administrative members. And I remember I was doing a placement and I saw a leaf with a tear on it. And I said to the social worker, what does that mean on the door of the room? And she was like, oh, that was a, to let the hospital know there's a stillborn you know, situation when they walk in the room. And I just turned and looked at her and I was like, we can do two hearts together. And that can be the symbol for adoption. And she was like, oh, yes. If you've thought about that through as a stillborn situation, then we can certainly talk about this in the terms of adoption and how to let everybody know that when they walk into that room, there's an adoption situation going to happen. And so just helping the hospital sometimes to navigate um, how to make it easier on their end and on their staff. And of course, we offer trainings to come in and talk about adoption and how does it work with our agency. Sometimes hospitals, I think, are hesitant because they have their own way of doing things and that's the way that it goes and they don't want to hear from outside entities. But certainly every time you can talk to a hospital employee and just sort of educate them about what you're doing, I've never had anybody say, oh my gosh, stop talking, you're not helping me. Like every single person has been like, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about that. And now I know, and now I know better for the next time. Yeah. And so Rebecca, I'd love to know how your trainings have been received in the way you provide that information to the hospital staff. You're spot on, Stephanie. You and I are like soulmates. <laughs> it is very true that the connection with the social worker or the case manager, that again, over the last couple of decades, that was kind of the go-to we're hitting a really difficult time with staff shortages. We're hitting that the social worker's not there on the weekends. If they are there on the weekends, maybe it's a float social worker. So it's someone who covers normally the ICU. And now they're coming into the OB unit going, okay, now what's happening? <laughs> you know, because babies don't look at the calendar. And so that's been really tricky. We also have about 30% nurse travelers now. And so we have travelers that are coming in and they will be there for 13 weeks, but they get one orientation shift. And so how do you bring up nurses up to speed about even that state's laws around adoption? Because maybe they're coming from Ohio and they're now doing a traveler job here in Colorado. Well, what are the, how are the laws different? And so, so much of the consistency of care has been really obliterated <laughs> because of that. Going in and training, and I am right there with you, Stephanie, every single time I talk to agencies or attorneys or other professionals, they'll say, well, we always offer the training but it's hard to get into the hospital. They're leery because they feel like we're trying to get babies. I never really understood that until I was actually in the hospital and realized that when you come in and we can use the infant adoption training initiative as an example, that really it, the whole idea was to pay for trainings to come into hospitals and clinics and doctor's offices. And, but that was done through agencies the grants went out to all these agencies that could go in. Well, when you come into a hospital and you offer a free training, let's say you do a lunch training, free lunch, yay, right in the report room, nurses love it. But if the day before they heard from a formula company and the day after they hear from a pharmaceutical company, then you've just become a marketer. You've come in and you left your business cards around and people bring in mugs full of chocolates and stuff for the nurses, hoping that you'll get the call because those calls are few and far between. And we know with the numbers dropping, we have agencies that are obviously relying on those emergency placements. And I'd love to hear from you guys too about how many more emergency placements we're having. So the idea that we're coming in healthcare training healthcare, 
feels very different. We do use the model of bereavement, like Stephanie said. We actually use our logo as the sign that goes on the door. It's a purple tree. You can see on our website, it's familytofamilysupport.org. But we use that for all unique families. And it's really like, get out of your autopilot, come in and know the story behind the door is different. Maybe you're going to come in and there's going to be a surrogate that's delivering and there's intended parents. Maybe there's an incarcerated patient. Maybe it's someone dealing with substance use disorder. Maybe it's two dads with an LGBTQ story and they've got a surrogate that they're going through the delivery with. Like there's so many different unique families now. So we've taken the idea of respectful, neutral, compassionate care. We teach it through the lens of adoption, but it overlaps into all these populations because you have to get out of your autopilot. You have to be aware of your biases, your thoughts, feelings, and emotions, and moral compass on what this patient's doing. You have to be reminded you don't get a vote. And then we give them scripting, like she's a mom in the hospital. She's not a birth mom, not till she terminates her rights. Is she a birth mom? So we make sure our nurses know that. We make sure that they're talking about her parenting plan or her adoption plan. She's not the lady giving up her baby in room 202. So, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that empowers the nurses to care for the moms and for dads if they're there, but it also is overarching for all these families that are outside of the box. And that's really been a huge positive thing with hospitals because you guys know with 18,000 placements a year, they're like, we don't see enough adoption to make training mandatory. And so what do you say to that? We say unique families are coming at all angles and adoption's a perfect way to teach it, but it overlaps into all these populations to receive better care at the bedside. I would definitely agree with that. I mean, I think that that is probably the number one response that we hear whenever we try to offer trainings is, oh, we don't see adoptions too often, (laughs) you know, but. Which um, means they're probably even more shaky when they do come in the door. Yeah, exactly. So I've had, I've had nurses say we wing it. We get in, get out. We hope we don't say the wrong thing. And we hope we don't see another one anytime soon. (laughs) I'm like, hmm, that's probably not a good approach. Yeah. (laughs) Let's empower you to care for these patients. What I also think is really challenging too is the difference levels of care that you see between what care the birth mom is getting versus what care the adoptive family is getting. If the adoptive family is there in the hospital, you know, sometimes you may hear a story where the birth mom feels that she's being neglected, she's not getting the medical attention or the emotional attention that she needs. But then on the very other end, the adoptive family saying things like the nurses are great, they've been wonderful, we're so happy here, you know. Um, so it's very interesting too how two patients at the same time are getting very different treatments. And I think it does come down to what we were talking about is just the level of education and the nurses and staff being prepared and equipped to to also be emotionally supportive to the patient as well. And when you think about the idea that there is literally no mandatory training, I'm doing a poster for the, what's called the A1 convention here in Denver this summer, which is the Association of Women Neonatal Nurses. Our posters about nursing schools and basically saying, why didn't I learn this sooner? Why didn't I learn this, learn this sooner? Unique family care in nursing schools. <laughs> like how do we teach respectful, neutral, compassionate care? And you're spot on when you say there can be people that are very supportive of the potential adoptive family. There can be people that are very supportive of the mom. We can have that flip with one shift change. (laughs) So we've upset the apple cart again. We teach about the ones and tens, which we basically, our template being the ones are very anti and the tens are really pro. And you can put anything on the ones and tens continuum. So you could do Democrat, Republican, pro-life, pro-choice, breastfeeding formula, whatever. And the people at the very ends, 
they're they're pretty loud and maybe a little crazy. Um, but I tell my nurses like you need to be a five. So strive to be a five means that I am neutral and compassionate and I'm pro-education. And I say things like, I can imagine this is hard. Can I put a do not disturb sign up for you? Do, is there someone I can call for you? Not you don't have to do this. I'll teach you to breastfeed and not, oh my gosh, you're so amazing. What a blessing you are. Like both of those sides of anti and pro are not appropriate in healthcare. We need to be in that center space. And I've got people that advocate for women not choosing adoption that wish that I would be anti-adoption, but they know to allow that I'd have to allow pro-adoption too. And neither is appropriate in healthcare. So our goal is to have the nurses there being a neutral space for that patient and being very aware that that goes for the potential adoptive family and for this mom that's looking at making this decision, that that's the approach, that we're not going to lather her with compliments. And we're also not going to come in and say, I'm not going to discharge you till you do the right thing, which is a true story from a physician, by the way. Yeah. They went in and told the mom, I'm not discharging you till you do the right thing. She was choosing adoption. So that's an extreme. That's yeah. a, that's a one, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so our goal is to be in that center space and nurses feel very empowered to be there. And they feel like we have given them a space to stand in where they don't have to vote. And our society right now is so flipping loud with everybody voting about what's right and what's wrong and what opinions they have. And they don't have any idea the backstory, 99% of that, of the time that that mom has gone through to make the decision she's made. So earlier in the podcast, we were talking a little bit about the differences between what we call planned placement and and an emergency placement. But we were also talking about birth parents meeting adoptive families on the internet or through facilitators or some other type of organization. And so I do want to talk a little bit about some of the challenges with that as well. You know, in my experience as a birth mom, social worker, and an adoptive family social worker, part of it is also educating the adoptive family too on some of these things. Like this birth mother is the patient. You are her guest. You follow her lead, you know, when she would like you to come visit her or not, you know, and you educate them on things like that. But that's working with an agency, you know, who we have social workers here who advocate for our expecting and birth parent clients. But that's not always the case if they're finding each other online. So I'd like to know a little bit about your thoughts on that. Do you want to speak to what you've seen and then I'll share what my nurses are telling me? We see so much. I definitely see everything that you all just talked about where adoptive parents are sort of treated as the special ones and the birth moms are just treated as if they're there. I've seen everything in between and you just have to manage it every single day like each a different situation like I literally take a deep breath before I go into any hospital because I'm like I just got to figure out like I got to get in there and just figure out who's been upset by somebody or who's impeded what they should have done you know I think for our agency, it's helpful that like there, we do have us as social workers. So like we can tell adoptive families don't, you know, come to the hospital at this time, be in the lobby at this time. And let's, you know, you you don't go upstairs. I think COVID has certainly helped with keeping people where they need to be. Hospitals are a little bit more on lockdown now. So people can't just venture to where they want to be anymore or interrupt where they, you know, you get flagged or whatever. But yeah, there's just, there's so many things that there's so many situations running through my mind right now that I could just talk about, but it definitely, it's day by day and it's hospital by hospital. And I think like we've said, it's staff member to staff member and what they're willing to, you know, be open to. Cause I mean, I have a situation now where a baby's in the NICU and I was told these were the set roles. And then I got there with the adoptive family and with the birth family and 
the birth mom went back to the NICU and all of a sudden she came out and she was like, oh, we got special permission. And I wanted to put my hands in my hand because I was like, but that special permission is literally, and I did, I said to the family, you have to understand this is just for this day on this shift at this this time, because that's not going to follow through to tomorrow or even the next shift. So, you know, we have to be very careful in how we balance what's right for everybody involved. There's so, there's so much. Yeah. It's the perfect storm right now. <laughs> That's why yeah. I'm really, really fighting for standard of care, best practice that will be consistent, even just a baseline understanding. Um, right now, what we're seeing all over the country is moms showing up with folders that are like, hi, I'm delivering. The family's on their way. I'm working with this person. Here's my paperwork. And I'm just supposed to let you know. And the family's flying in from some outside state. So now we have a dynamic that they may have met in person. They may have been besties on FaceTime. Who knows? I have no idea at this point, but I have a nurse holding a folder. Social workers maybe haven't been contacted, usually not, because we don't have anybody boots on the ground. Sadly, what often ends up happening is those, those strong connected agencies in that community are getting called in to clean up the mess. And they're like, you know what? Well, let's call Martha at this agency. She always comes in and we have a really good relationship with her. Well, Martha will come in. And now we have a mom from the internet that has met this family. The family has shown up with their idea of what it's supposed to look like. The nurses don't know what's going on. And now Martha from this agency has come in. She's never met these people. (laughs) And now we have this like chaotic situation that did not have to be like that. I mean, that there's no... Um, there's no benefit for anyone involved in that. And especially not that mom and that baby that this whole, I mean, the, the benefits coming from the family that was picked that got connected and has probably pulled quite a bit of emotional and financial heart into this placement. Um, and we're seeing a ton of people change their minds in the hospital. I'm hearing from my nurses, like we have so many moms that are changing their mind because they don't have strong counseling coming in. They have this idea that, well, when I get there, I'm just going to take care of this and be done, but they've, they've never really had support. So when that happens, there's a couple of things that might happen. They might actually be told, don't tell them you're doing an adoption and we'll just do the handoff in the parking lot. That's a whole other Oprah, or they'll come in and they'll say, no, I don't, I can't do this. I don't know these people. I'm being ignored. This is my baby. This, I thought this would be easier than it is. Well, now she doesn't have a parenting plan. The potential adoptive family is beside themselves upset. We have some nurses that are on team adoptive parents and some nurses that are on team patient. And then she needs to go home. She's going to be discharged, but she doesn't have a parenting plan. So most hospitals, the only thing they can do is flag her for child protective services to make sure she has follow-up on the backside. Well, we just opened a file on her for social services because she didn't have a plan solid enough leaving the hospital and the hospital wants to make sure there's some oversight, but there's no other network involved around that hospital but CPS. So it's the perfect storm. It's why I don't sleep, but it is also why we're fighting for federal oversight, federal funded support for training healthcare to healthcare to get these people on the front lines empowered to care for this dynamic. Because it's only going to get worse. You guys, I know when we talked offline, Jenna, that you had said you'd seen such an increase in these emergency placements. We see restrictions on abortions. We see the idea that safe haven is supposed to make that okay. Well, wait a minute. That's bringing a baby to a hospital and just leaving. No, no. (laughs) No, that's not good for anyone. So, I mean, what's appealing to certain people 
like a drive-through baby pickup at Starbucks, that may be appealing for a family that doesn't want to invest for an entire three, four, five months in a pregnancy, but that's not serving them well in the long term. It's not serving that child well in the long term, and it's certainly not serving that mom. They're tough, right? I mean, yeah. we going in and we have what, two days sometimes, mm-hmm. sometimes a day, and there's tons of paperwork out of our control. There's counseling that needs to be done, options counseling, but also just if she is adamant on adoption, open adoption, counseling. And I know in my experience, you sit there and you have all this time, but she's overwhelmed. She just gave birth and she's in pain and she, you know, is tired. And I feel like a lot of the times our birth mothers can just be like, I don't care. You just pick the family and you just, I don't want any openness. It's fine. I don't need anything. And then two, three months later down the road, they're saying, I really wish I would have said I wanted letters and pictures. We we have set it up to where that's okay. And that's what we want her to do because the family wants to have an open adoption, but that's not always the case. So Stephanie, can you just talk a little bit about some of the challenges that you see with emergency placements? Yeah. I mean, I think you hit them all on the head. She's so overwhelmed in that moment. And it's not just us coming in as an agency. It is, you know, the lactation consultant coming in it's the nurses coming in and then the financial people show up and it's just one thing after the other. And it's anxiety, but I think it's frustration. And I was at a hospital one time with a woman where, I mean, we were just sitting there talking about adoption and what does that look like? And I mean, we were interrupted like five times by knocks on the door. And she finally just looked at me and said, if one more person knocks on that door, I'm going to scream. And I was like, well, let's not scream, but let me go out and let them know that you and I want to talk and that's your priority. So that's what I was able to do. And so sometimes as a social worker, I have to sort of go out and talk to the hospital about, okay, these are her boundaries right now because she can't even get those out sometimes, you know, because they have so much on their plate and they're going through so much. And there's so much that I'm not seeing. Sometimes I always say it's not what they're telling me. It's everything they're not telling me, you know, like. All of their body language says, I'm tired, I'm overwhelmed, I can't make this decision. It's not that I don't want to, I just physically can't make it right now. And But her words are saying, no, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, we can keep going. And I'm like, no, you're not, because your your body language is telling me something different. And I see that your cell phone is going off beside you. I know that's a family member or a friend who wants to know what's going on and you have to update them or you, you know, that's your support system. And so they're trying to figure out all these moving pieces. And I think it's just overwhelming. And there are some times where I literally have said, you know what, when in doubt, we're not going to do anything. We're going to take a good 24 hours and we're just going to rest. You know, it's noon now. I'll come back tomorrow morning. It's okay. And I think it's okay to give them the power to say, I need a minute. (laughs) And I don't need a minute. I need like five hours. And I think too, sometimes the struggle with that is hospitals are like, nope, the insurance runs out at such and such a time on such and such a day. We can't keep this baby one second sooner. And so I know that, you know, this is an emergency and everything. But then I also feel like sometimes the hospitals take that out on birth parents because they feel like, but you could have made, you know, you could have called ahead. You could have made an adoption plan. You could have reached out to an agency or an attorney and you could have made a plan, but you chose not to. So that's the consequences of, you know, now we have to, we have to do everything right now and it has to be done by this time tomorrow, or, you know, we have to call children and you. And so, you know, I think that that's so frustrating. And that's where, you know, as for us, Jenna, we walk, that's where we intercede and go, okay, wait a second. 
yeah. there are other options. Like, let's talk yes. about this for a second, <laughs> you know, but if she doesn't have that support system, like Rebecca's talking about, of, you know, an attorney or, you know, someone that she has an agency, a counselor, someone who can be there to advocate for her, that's not going to happen because the, just the insurance company isn't going to let it happen. Take the healthcare workers out of it. The insurance company is like, so sad, too bad. Baby has to go. We're not going to cover past this time. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times we've gotten kicked out <laughs> of the hospital. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and you bring up a good point too, because I think we know brain science that's the worst time to make a decision. Aside from all the hormones, it's the worst thing you can do when you start talking about staying regulated, making decisions, thinking long-term, all those things that we know have to be in place, that nothing is in place in that moment. And thank goodness you guys are willing to step back, but we know that there are others that are preying on that time and are saying, nope, you can sign these papers at 24 hours out. I did a training um, in Utah and I remember talking to them about she doesn't have to sign the papers at 24 hours. So like, what do you mean? They told us that, that if she, you know, if she goes ahead and delivers at four, they'll be back at four o'clock the next day. I'm like, she doesn't have to sign the papers at 24 hours. That's the minimum. And if she wants to take three days, two weeks with that babe at home a month, like that decision to choose adoption does not have to be immediate and actually lifting that off and allowing her to process allows for, I believe, the groundwork for healing so much more than feeling rushed. And she gets out of that hospital and says, well, I was forced to make a decision and sign the paper because the hospital said I had to leave. And, you know, that doesn't feel good to anybody. And now I'm to the point with my kids being in their 20s, they are hearing their stories and saying, was this done ethically, mom? You know, did, did my parents have the time they needed? Were they treated well? And I have to say, you know, in one case, no, but there's, there's accountability to that. I think those that rush in and are preying on the vulnerable, these kids down the line, they're going to have something to answer to and say, well, you know what, mom, she actually said that she was forced out, you know, that she didn't have time to think through her decision that she was told she had to sign the paperwork. So I think, I think we're in a space right now where we have the perfect dynamic, the perfect storm for corruption. And thus those that are trying to do infant adoption in an ethical manner, it's incredibly difficult, especially when you put in the pieces of the internet and the different state laws and the flying women to different parts of the country to, you know, do those placements under certain state laws. Then we have Medicaid reimbursement issues, and then we have reimbursing birth parent expenses, you know, being Mm -hmm. threatened. You can't choose to parent or you're going to have to pay me back all this money, not having legal representation for just them. I mean, it, it really is something that has to be addressed. I think we start talking about infant trafficking and hoping that will that make people listen? Because we need hospitals to step up and have policy and protocol and best practice because all these babies are being born somewhere. Mm-hmm. And we can't just turn a blind eye and say, well, in the 60s, they just used to be handed to a social worker. You know, so I'll be in DC actually next week on Capitol Hill having these conversations about baby brokers, about standardized hospital training, trying to get people to see this is serious. This is something that has to be addressed. Yeah. So the last time we talked, you told me about a bill, HR 2375. Is that what you're referencing here? This bill, I I believe, is you're hoping to get approved to make 
it mandatory that there's some type of training for hospitals? Yes. So our hope is to fund training at the bedside and also training in clinics and doctor's offices to empower moms to look at adoption through ethical, through an ethical lens, not hit the internet. That's like our big hope making sure she knows her rights up front. We know that ACOG, which is the Association for OBGYNs, they have an ethics statement that says they have to be able to share adoption as an option for women in unplanned pregnancy, but it says they have to refer them to agencies and professionals. Well, there's no standard for that. And so to expect doctors to fulfill an ethical statement without a standardized network of ethical providers, (laughs) you're kind of stuck. So it would empower us to fund that piece. It would empower post-placement services for moms, tethering that to the hospital. It lists substance use disorder in there as well as therapy in there. Because we know right now, if we don't have resources, boots on the ground, let's say she's delivering in a small town in Kansas, (laughs) she doesn't have resources there and there's no agency local. How is she going to get post-placement support? How is she going to get counseling? How is she ever going to pay for that, you know, and it's grief counseling. We know that there was an agency in Idaho that did research and found that the moms they worked with that did not get post-placement support, 86% were pregnant again the first year. And so we see that empty arm syndrome where they choose adoption, they don't get the grief counseling they need and may end up pregnant again and be in that same situation that they were in prior to. And so how do we build a network around the hospital? And that also will help should she choose to parent, will we have other resources to send her to rather than just sending her to social services? I think that will be key as well. It all is extremely necessary. And you know, you're on the West Coast, but I think you do do trainings out here on the East Coast as well. Yeah. And being on the East Coast, we know that we need it, right, Stephanie? And our hospitals Absolutely. need it. <laughs> and so yeah, it's universal. We so we have our unique families program is what we go in and train hospitals in. We have a an educational online portal that Huggies Healthcare supports. So people can go in and see all our webinars for free and see what we're actually talking about. (laughs) Like, what are these people doing? (laughs) You can go and see those pieces. But I mean, our hope is that that money will end up landing in the neutral space of healthcare so that moms and dads can be protected and find counseling in a neutral space where we don't have any skin in the game. We're not going to make any money because I have amazing agencies I work with, but the perception can be that they're coercive because they're an agency. Even if they're the most non-coercive counselors I know, they can still be seen as coercive because of the way they're perceived. And so I think that's a big reason we're seeing so many emergency placements. I don't think that there's a safe space to go to that doesn't feel like a battlefield. I feel like the pro-life, pro-choice battlefield has become so intense that stepping into a place for education that isn't going to put you into the battle. (laughs) And then you're always hoping like, is this person really for me? Are they trying to sell me something? Are they getting something out of it? So how do we create that space for education where they can, that's why we talk about being a pro-education program. It's about 
respectful, neutral, compassionate care, keeping her regulated so she can find the resources she needs to either parent or place through ethical means. Well, Rebecca, I'm so thankful that you were here today. You too, Stephanie, giving us our on the ground experience. And, And I believe that Family to Family Support Network is the only hospital training program that is doing things this way. Is, is mm-hmm. that, is that correct? That yeah. Is correct. We still have the only curriculum in the last 20 years that actually addresses bedside care for women going through adoption. That's expanded into other unique family populations too. Yeah. And so can you uh, let our listeners know uh, your website? Yeah. Family to family support.org is our website. The bill that Jenna referenced is H.R. 2375. It is sponsored by Congressman Smuckers. We also have Congressman Dean Phillips out of Minnesota, who's a Dem, so it's officially bipartisan, and it's a win-win for everyone. That's the beauty of that bill. If you can reach out to your congressmen and congresswomen and let them know that, that you want that support in your community, it will build that in at the hospital level. Great. All right, everyone. Well, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Heart to Heart with Adoptions from the Heart podcast. As always, I'm your host, Jenna, and I'm ever so grateful for our guests today, Rebecca and Stephanie. Thank you so much for joining us today and on this important discussion of hospital training and open adoption language. If you're not already, head over to our website at www.afth.org for more information on our services, as well as our new online webinars that we provide to prospective adoptive families, nurses, and social work professionals. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.